if you're new here, we've been in a, the book of Acts for, for quite a while. We're actually going to be in the book of Acts until this next October. That's when we will finally get to the last of Acts. But it's, it's, it's been good, even though it's been uncomfortable to see several things exposed in my own life. And of course, again today, as we read in Acts 16, I'll have many things to personally share with you that the Lord is exposing in my life. But, but in the hope that just as we've sung, that we come back to, wow, look how incredible our God is. Look how faithful our Lord is in Jesus Christ. Look, look at His mercy. And so we're going to see that again on this display today in, in Acts 16. Um, I, maybe it's helpful to back up a little bit. So just thinking about the larger picture of Acts, one of the reoccurring words that we think about, or at least that we've come to realize here in the book of Acts, is obedience, right? Uh, when, when we think about the book of Acts, what had happened? Obviously, we can back up to Jesus. Easter wasn't too long ago. We, we remember Jesus' crucifixion, His burial, His resurrection. And then there's this time before He appears to His disciples. And then when He appears before His disciples, He comes back and says, Hey, I got some news for you. I'm not sticking around. I'm going to ascend to the Father, to the right hand of the Father, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm, I'm giving you a work. You're going to baptize, make disciples. I'm giving you a work to do. I'm commissioning you, and I'm giving you a helper, the Holy Spirit. And here are the things that are about to happen. And of course, Acts is what unfolds the church of Jesus Christ continuing, even though Jesus Christ is not walking on earth anymore. So there's the big overview of Acts, but if we want to just back up shortly, let's back up to to Easter leading back in Acts. We were in the book of John through a portion of Lent all the way up through Easter Resurrection Sunday. And so where we come back to today, or come back around in these past few weeks in Acts 15 and 16, is, is around the Apostle Paul, right? We see a few characters through Acts, a few of the Apostles, Peter, James, now the Apostle Paul is, is on this second missionary journey, and, and he has Silas with him, and we know from last week, Timothy has now joined them. And of course, Luke, the, the author, the writer of Acts, must be with them because he's an eyewitness to what's going on recording these things. And there may have been some other folks in this cohort, this missionary cohort, if you will. So we know that last week, Paul was prohibited by the Spirit, not once, but twice, right? The Spirit of Jesus into going into where? Asia. He wasn't going to go to Asia, but he has this vision. This is the beginning of Acts 16. He has this vision of a man in Macedonia calling out, come help us. So Paul is faithful. They go there, and this is where Acts 16 is continuing, is there in Macedonia, this place they've been called to. While they were there, the first story we heard is that they encounter a lady named Lydia, who is, is devout. She's a seller of high-end goods, of purple goods, the word tells us. She is from some region in, in Asia, but has landed in this European area, this, this area of Philippi in Macedonia. And so Paul is proclaiming the word at the, at the riverside on the Sabbath to a, a lot of women. And she is one who responds and then proceeds in baptism. And then this beautiful line at the end of that section last week says, and I love this, that says, uh, Luke writes that Lydia prevailed upon us, recording as, as Paul saying she was inviting them to come to her house. Would you, would you stay with us? And she per 
prevailed upon us to stay. Well, we're going to see Lydia come up a few times, and she is prevailing. And that's kind of a beautiful thing as someone transformed in Jesus Christ to say, I want to serve you. I want to walk alongside you. I want to open my home. I want this place to be like a church gathering. So it's worth expressing when we think about that, at least acknowledging on a day like today, Acknowledging Mother's Day. Well, what does that have to do with Acts 16? Well, quickly, as we think about Lydia, uh, some, of, some of you ladies here, you have a story you, you've, you've given birth years ago. Maybe you're sitting with those very children who are adults now. Some of you uh, may long to have children, and that hasn't happened yet, and we long for that with you. Some of you may never have children who take on your last name. But, well, ladies, on this Mother's Day, may you see Lydia. May you see Lydia as a daughter of God and a sister of Christ. She was a woman of strength, of servanthood, of now obedience to follow Jesus. And she prevailed upon those given under her watch, under her care. Prevailed upon those alongside her. In other words, she was persuasive as a mother-like figure too. It's, it seems many. So whether you have children or not, you, my sisters in Christ, you are a spiritual mother to someone. Prevail like Lydia. That is our Mother's Day reminder today. So let's pick up in Acts 16 now. Acts 16, verse 16 through 40. And I want to invite you to do this. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? You know, you, you may have heard this phrase uh, sometimes when, when a text is preached. At the end of the Scripture reading, this is the Word of the Lord. And then you hear this response sometimes, or you hear a mermaid response. Uh, Thanks be to God. Uh, so, Why am I going into that? Well, uh, my hope for our church family, not that we have these laws that we have to say these certain things and God shows up because we say certain things, but more of as we continue to be a responsive family that celebrates the good news of Jesus Christ, we'd become a place to get loud, that we would become a place that finds freedom to speak out and, and, and shout out the good news of Jesus when we hear the word proclaimed. And so, uh, why are we talking about quickly this This is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God? Because if we're in Christ, we've been born again through a living and abiding word of God. In other words, it's the very words of, God's proclaim, of God proclaimed by which we come to know Jesus. So hear this reminder from 1 Peter chapter 2. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Friends, the same God who caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, is the same God speaking to us again today. And so this is the reason to say every time we read the Scriptures, thanks be to God. So I want us to put it to practice today. So we're going to read the word of the Lord And then when we say, this is the word of the Lord, respond with, thanks be to God. All right, here we go. You ready? Acts 16, 16 through 40. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. 
But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that aren't lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in, attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Well, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew a sword, and he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the next day, the magistrates sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they, do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Well, the police reported these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and they visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, you may be seated. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're always speaking. I'm grateful that we don't have to listen up for some special voice ring out in a dream, although that would be amazing if that were to happen. I'm grateful that you speak loud and clear and you give us everything we need right here in this written word. You're an errant, infallible, holy word used to reprove, you rebuke, admonish. May it do the same thing today and may it bring great comfort in the end that even as you work on us by the power of your spirit, that you love us, that you discipline those that you love, that you care for us and that you know everything about us. Help us, send us out today proclaiming the good news of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right. Acts 16, 16 through 40. That was a lot there. So what's going on? Well, here's the story. It seems that, that Luke began this section by backing up, right? He 
Paul, Timothy, Silas, many others with them possibly were going to the place of prayer, it says, that was mentioned before they meet Lydia. And it sounds like Luke, the author here, is just backed up for a second to acknowledge this possessed slave girl because it says that the day they're going to the place of prayer or as they're going to the place of prayer, this girl comes on the scene, this possessed girl who'd been following them for a while. And it, what it says it, it goes on for many days that, that when they were gathering with the women outside the gate, this girl has been shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God. And what are they doing? I'm telling everyone, they're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. It says she did this for some time. She was being used by her owners as a slave. We see that to make them money. There was gain in this girl. So this is not uncommon in this particular region. And we'll actually see this coming up in Acts 17 as Paul continues on through, through Greece, which is also part of the Roman Empire. But what we would see is modern day Greece, Macedonia, and then on to Athens. That there's a lot of People saying, I've got a lot at stake in this whole idolatry thing. I can make a lot of money. I can make a lot of money by crafting idols, as we'll see here soon in Acts 17. So there's your teaser for the text coming up. But also there were folks going, hey, I can, I can take advantage of this particular goddess here. And it, it says historically that this young girl, this slave girl, uh, they acknowledged this python goddess. I can't remember the name they gave her. But that this was the goddess of divination, of, of fortune-telling, in other words. And so we're going to send her out into the city center, the public square, and she's going to stand out there and peddle her job. And she's going to bring all the money back to us. So here is what is going on. And, and this isn't the first time that we've seen something like this in Scripture, right? If we want to back up and just think about possession, demonic possession for a second, Luke, the same author of Acts, actually writes about this in his gospel, Luke 4, and chapter 4 of Luke, when Jesus was teaching in Capernaum on the Sabbath. It, it says a, a possessed man uh, cries out in the middle of Jesus' teaching, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Look at how, how the demons acknowledge that, that this man is, is Jesus. Look, look how this is already happening. Very similar to what this slave girl, this possessed slave girl has done. Acknowledging a most high God. And then the demon in Luke chapter 4 continues on. This is particularly verse 34, if you just want to write this down to have remembered. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And then in Luke chapter 8, we remember Legion, the many demons who possess this man among the graves, among the tombs. These demons acknowledge the Lord as well. When he, that is the demon-possessed man, saw Jesus, this is in Luke 8, chapter, Luke chapter 8, verse 28, he cried out and fell before him, Jesus, and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. And then if we want to fast forward into the writer James, James 2 shows that that this isn't a new pattern, that the demons, they believe and shudder at what? That, that God is, is one, that Jesus Christ is truly Lord. And so here in Acts 16, we see a similar thing happening here. Here is a possessed slave girl, a servant of corruption, evil, a woman who is oppressed, and this demon is actually acknowledging the servant 
of Jesus, acknowledging that these men who are sent by the Spirit, by Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the Lord, this must be the Lord at work. The interesting thing here about this woman, this slave girl, is these two identities can't coexist when you're in the presence of Jesus Christ or when you're in the presence of the Word of the Lord. You can't be both. And so, here's what happens. Paul speaks up, right? This girl had been calling out. It's interesting because it, it, the text says that Paul was greatly annoyed, or at least in the English. But, but there's an interesting word there, Paul having become greatly annoyed. That word used for in the place of greatly annoyed originally is diaponemi, the Greek there. And it means more literally, actually to be greatly disturbed. To, to be grieved by something. And so think about this. This is a beautiful thing happening here with Paul. Think of Paul's response. Not like our current definition of being annoyed. You bothered me enough, so I'm going to fix this quickly because I'm really annoyed. But more of responding with a grieved, this woman is oppressed. This woman is enslaved to darkness. She is being abused by her owners. And she needs Jesus. Let me speak the word of the Lord to her. I'm grieved at this. Let me give her the only hope that I know, the only true hope. And so Paul speaks up and he speaks out. He speaks towards the things that are deceptive, the things that seek to take attention off the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting because Paul had already seen uh, trouble So he knew what he was in for. It's not like this is a new thing going on here as we continue through this story. He had faced beatings and threats. He could have remained silent in order to just go, you know what, I've been through this before. I've seen the problems that arise when you do stuff like this. But what does he do? He says, I'm not pursuing momentary peace. I'm going to speak up because God has given me the best news. I remember my own story on the Damascus Road when I was persecuting the very people of God, the people following Jesus. And Jesus radically changed my heart. Can you imagine what's running through his mind as he speaks up and speaks out? I wonder for us today, just as we're beginning this story or walking through Acts 16, I wonder how many times we see something at cost. We see someone else that's in need and we see that it's going to cost us much to speak up, to speak into, maybe even have friends who go, man, I don't have time for that. That's just bringing too much trouble my way. Someone that just says, just ignore it. How many times that we try to keep silent, we walk away, We believe that maybe we won't say it right. We believe we'll just mess up the whole thing, that we need to soften the blow somehow. We're fearful that we'll lose something if we speak up about something that pushes against darkness. Now you see, Paul knew something was at stake. He already knew that. He knew that the only man who could free the possessed and oppressed, he knew Jesus. This girl was possessed by the power of darkness And she was oppressed by her owners and wanted her as a money-making slave. Paul calls out in the name of the rescuer himself, I, Paul, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. The first thing to just pause and think through. One, how beautiful it is that Paul responds in this way. But maybe for us today in thinking about this, do, do we know how to speak freedom to the captives? Are we willing to speak the name of Jesus to the watching world? Are we being ministers of of reconciliation? And when I shared earlier that, that the Word is always working on me, 
this is this is where I I just really have a hard time because the truth is I like to escape any kind of trouble. I don't want to deal with it. If it seems like there's a loss, if it seems like there's something I'm going to lose to speak, even when it comes to speaking the name of Jesus, I am often quick to just go, ah, Lord will make some other opportunity way more clear than this. And I just wonder how many opportunities we have in just speaking out. Not, not just worldly things, right? I mean, we don't, we don't see a separation of the gospel and then justice, the gospel is all about justice, right? The gospel in, in its essence is a story of justice in the sense that God is, is being very just and He executes justice in an incredible and, and yet in a very scandalous way through His Son Jesus Christ to lay sin on His only Son and to send Jesus Christ to the cross and yet to promise that this isn't the end of the story. Jesus Christ, my Son, will return and will make all things new. If that's not justice, I don't know what is. That's a beautiful picture of making things right. But, but not just speaking into the easy things like, oh, someone's in need of, of help, let me throw a buck their way. But speaking into, hey, there's a deeper oppression going on. Am I speaking the name of Jesus? Am I speaking up? And, and beyond that, am I long-suffering in it? Am I willing to sit in it and even take on the cost of that? Honestly, there are many times where I just go, I don't know if I want to do that. So I'm just crying out, hopefully with you all again today, help me, Lord Jesus. Bring that burden back to me, to my heart, to, to truly believe that you come through Jesus in your timing and your way, and even when it costs something, it's worth it. So let's continue through the story as we ponder that. Paul responds, it's interesting uh, the you know we've already backed up to this this idea of Paul being being grieved but then we we see this theme of of bondage and oppression it's it's continuing you know this is not the only oppressive thing that's going to happen here in this text so th- what happens the slave girl is a pr- is freed from this demonic possession and and her owners find out right well they're not happy about this obviously you know, God's Word tells us that they had some hope taken away. Our financial gain is gone. Our money-making scheme has been wiped out. And so what did they do? They used their citizenship as a weapon. And so here's a paraphrase of this. We Romans, we don't want our society disturbed. So let's go in the public square. Let's cause a stir. And let's pin something on these men, Paul and Silas and the missionaries with them. And let's say, these guys are are disturbing the peace. They're going to mess up all your schemes too, basically is what they were saying. If, if you want to make it, get rid of these guys because they're messing everything up. And then they say they're doing unlawful things. They're doing unacceptable things. What exactly was Paul and Silas doing? It was unlawful. Look how they've twisted. And look how the evil one loves to twist the truth. Were they doing anything truly unacceptable? Well, we'll see at the end of this text that no, they were actually Roman citizens themselves. They had plenty of rights within this society. But isn't it true that, that folks will go to great lengths? You know, how can we see ourselves in the, the place of these slave owners? They'll go to great lengths to protect the thing or things that, that give them the most hope. You know, what will I do to protect that thing? At what cost will I go to to guard that thing? 
To what lengths will we go to retaliate when our idols are being crushed? Well, these folks take Paul and Silas. They drag them out into the public square before the rulers. And the magistrates, they publicly attack them. Also physically, it says the crowd join in attacking them. They tear their clothes, so they humiliate them now. And then they have them beaten with rods, not just once, it says many times. And after that, Paul and Silas are thrown into prison, shackled. Paul was facing the very thing he had said in Acts 14. If we just want to back up for a second to a few weeks back, this is actually before Easter, and Paul is encouraging disciples in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And this is Acts 14, verse 22. He had faced another beating. He said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The very thing Paul has said is happening here. He's having to believe his own words. And so now, look as the story continues. What do Paul and Silas do after all of this? Well, He's putting his money where his mouth is. They're thrown in prison after all this. What is their response? They respond in prayer and singing hymns to God. Uh, You know, the reason we come together and gather in the way we do is because we have something to respond to. God has revealed Himself to us in Jesus Christ. And truly, when we think about the gospel story, we can't help but respond. You know, not just proclaiming it to the watching world, although that's necessary, but we respond with one another. We're pointing at each other back. You know, it's, it's in the same way we're going to see in the prison here that Paul was actually pointing. He was using their response before God as a pointer to the listening prisoners and to the jailer himself. But, you know, earlier we read our, our call to worship, uh, and this kind of ties in together. It, it was just like this in the sense that the people of God and at this time had, had hymns to remember. They had songs that had been passed down. Songs of deliverance. It's like the one we read, which is why we read Exodus 16 this morning. The, the songs that, that help us remember and, and tell the story of God's faithfulness over and over. So the song of Moses that we read in Exodus 15, it's just one example of this. But in the midst of tribulation, how do we respond? Well, we come back to the songs of deliverance. We come back, in other words, to the Word of God. We come back to what is true. What do I need to remember again? What am I the the fastest to forget? I'm prone to wonder, and I forget this first often. So let's come back, cry out to the one who knows what's going on, and remind ourselves that he's bigger than our current situation. And so that's how Paul and Silas are now responding here in shackles and in prison. And then we continued on with a lament that that Allison actually led us in, a prayer that we read together. You know, we we, we practiced this uh, from Psalm 13. Well, what was that about? Because we remember that God says, cry out to me in need. I'm not a God who says, you're on your own now. It's not like Jesus said, okay, when I ascend to the Father, you're on your own, do your thing, and just hold tight. I'm coming back. It's going to get rough. Well, he actually did say that. But he didn't leave them alone, right? He sent them the helper, the Spirit. What does the Spirit do for the people of God? Well, the Spirit dwells in the people of God. We're given that promise. Maybe homework for this week. Read Ephesians chapter 1 if you want to see a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's given as a a guarantee of our inheritance, a deposit in our lives. What else does the Spirit do? The Spirit convicts. The Spirit illuminates as we come to God's Word. The Spirit works on us. What else does the Spirit do? The Spirit 
praise in ways that we can't even express before the, the, the Father. The ways that we just go, I don't even have words. I don't, I don't know what to lay out before God in my prayer. And the Spirit interceding in a beautiful way in the same way that Jesus intercedes. What a beautiful thing. So we're given these ways to even put this to practice, which is why we do this through our liturgy every week we come together. And this week we had particularly this, this lament from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? In other words, how long am I going to rehearse the same things over that I'm just teaching myself the wrong stuff? How long is it going to feel like you're off in the distance and you don't care? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Please consider my answer, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. I wonder if Paul's a guy who got verse 6 really well. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me from Psalm 13. This reminder, Paul remembered what he had been delivered from and who he had been delivered to, the kingdom of God and the family of Jesus Christ. He's now called a son of God and a co-heir with Jesus Christ as we are today in Jesus Christ. Paul knew the life from which he was delivered. Damascus Road Transformation. And so the actions of Paul and Silas, what's going on there, singing hymns and praying while imprisoned, you know, they were duly purposeful. This is a beautiful thing about how the Lord works, right? He works in the midst of our trials and our suffering, and He's also working on others around us. He's working on those who, who are exposed to the same trial and suffering. Maybe, maybe you're not going through the same thing, but as you care for someone going through that, as you minister the love of Jesus to someone, the Lord's working duly, right? The Lord's not just working on them. It's not like, I've just got good news for you and I'm okay. You've got good news for me. And we're all messed up and we're all in need, right? So the Spirit is working. He's empowered Paul and Silas to endure, to be long-suffering, to believe something greater than their momentary suffering. But God's also using their response as a witness. You know, we, if you haven't heard this language, when we talk about why we come and gather together, why is it important for us? If, if we have Jesus Christ, why should we come be a church and gather together? Well, there's a few reasons. Because Scripture tells us to not neglect the fellowship of believers. Hebrews 10 is a great place to go, just as a beginning point there. But there's a beautiful ministry when we come together as the people of God because as worshipers of the living God, we don't just worship an audience of one. Although it's true that our worship is only to God, God is the only one worthy of our worship, right? But there are three audiences always present in a, as a life of lifelong, ongoing worship, right? Because our worship is to God, exalting Jesus Christ, our Savior, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, but our worship is doing something among one another. It's for one another. It's with one another, right? So when we sing songs, aloud, sing songs, I guess we could go to Colossians 3.16 here for a second. 3.16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. This is in the context of the church gathered as Paul addresses, 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 addresses the church at Colossae. He says, admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
And all the while doing this, if you just want to break down the Greek language there, it's like, while you're doing this, this is actually what's going on. While you're singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, you're actually letting the Word of Christ dwell richly, admonishing one another in all wisdom. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so this is what's going on here in this prison. Because there were prisoners listening, they're witnessing, they're hearing. And then of course the story goes on. The Philippian jailer is exposed as well. Well, we know that an earthquake happens. But but maybe maybe before we get into the kind of the good part of the story, uh, you know, we we need to just pause here and, and understand we have to be people who understand our witness. Bearing witness is both to believers and unbelievers. And so my confession, another one, uh, as I admitted, I try to avoid pain at all costs. Uh, I'm going to let you know how bad it is. I don't mind telling you that. Uh, but I tend to go to others instead of to God with everything. In other words, when I'm going through something, my last bent is actually to pray and sing psalms of praise, right? My first inclination is to go, I got to go to someone who can just identify with me and tell me it's going to be okay. And I'm grateful my brothers and sisters can come alongside me and, and point me back. But, but I'm just pausing there for a second just to acknowledge the, the, the wonderful thing that happened here where Paul and Silas, they don't seem to be groaning and moaning to one another, right? They're just calling out to the Lord in prayer, singing songs of praise. Do we do that? Is that our first inclination? Lord, help us. So the prisoners are listening in, and then we hear about this earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken, the doors bust open, and the bonds and shackles were undone. I just wonder if we can read that with fresh eyes. You know, we hear a few stories about prison breaks in, in Scripture, but just to see how amazing that is that Paul and Silas are sitting here, maybe not really expecting this to happen, but just to think about how this all comes about, right? If we really think about God and His infinite power, that He can do anything, He knows everything that's going to happen, because we already know the end of the story, right? We know that Paul and Silas are going to be released the next day. That was going to happen. Why in the world would God choose to send an earthquake and do all this stuff? And I think it's kind of fascinating, personally, that there was an earthquake and the jail, the, the prison didn't like crumble. It says it just shook the prison and the doors were open and the shackles come off. That's kind of cool that God just works in that way. Uh, you know, but, but think about it for a second with just fresh eyes and fresh ears. That our God is that amazing. That, that as people, His people, His children are calling out to Him, He's listening and saying, I will deliver, and I've got a reason for the way I'm going to deliver. So, do we really see how incredible the work of our God is? Maybe it's a good way to pause and just say, oh gracious God, would you take our expression of praise when we gather and use it to comfort, to form your people in the image of your Son, and to free those enslaved in bondage to sin. I think there's just a beautiful picture there of Paul and Silas. May our gatherings be like that. The prisoners aren't the only ones hearing Paul and Silas. We've already talked about this. The jailer was there. After the earthquake, what happens? He awakes. He's freaking out after the aftermath. And he's assuming that everyone's gone. That everyone had fled. And if I'm Paul and Silas, I'm doing that. I'm leaving. I'm not hanging around. 
I'm like, this is my opportunity. God's opened the prison. I might as well walk out and, and get on. But what happens? The jailer is about to take his life. He draws a sword. And I, I wonder if he knew the story earlier in Acts when, when Peter was freed from prison. When the angel leads him out. The aftermath of that story is not so great. First of all, James, one of the other apostles, was killed. Peter's imprisoned. It looks like Peter was going to be killed. And Herod's pretty upset about this release. They can't find Peter. He can't find him. So he needs some retribution. What does he do? Well, he kills those jailers. I just noticed I said kills in a weird way. Kills. Kills. He murders them. It's not good. So I can imagine this jailer's thinking himself, the Philippian jailer, something bad's about to go down. I might as well just take care of business myself. And of course, Paul stepping on the scene again, just like he did with that enslaved, demon-possessed girl. Let me speak up. Let me speak out. Let me tell you the truth. Let me point you to the one who can actually save you. And he cries out to the, the jailer, hold up. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. A jailer responds, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul speaks up again. Paul and Silas say, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who are in his house. I, I read this earlier and I was like, is that all? I mean, not that that's not big, but sometimes when I just read like just a response of believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, I don't know. My mind just goes to, couldn't you have said like believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because here's what atonement's about. This is what this means. This is what he did on the cross and this is how this... Oh, he says, it, it continues on that he spoke the word of the Lord to he and his family. So I'm sure he unpacked a lot more. But isn't there a beauty in just the simplicity of that when Paul just says, the first thing you need to know is you need to trust. You need to believe. Wouldn't it be helpful if there was like more discourse given though? We always want to think like if I'm proclaiming the gospel to someone, I've got to have my act together. I've got to have all these things. Now, I do believe Scripture's clear. We should be ready in and out of season. We should meditate on God's Word in such a way that we've hidden it in our hearts because it is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path as some of us may have learned as, as little children from Psalm 119. But the truth is, this is the most beautiful thing we can share with anyone. Jesus Christ is a deliverer. Believe in Him. Now, there's a lot to belief, right? We can pause there for a second and think, yeah, there's cognitive belief. I think my two boys believe in Jesus Christ. I think they believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I think there's a different story of actually exercising faith and placing trust. And Paul is calling out to the jailer, do not trust in your own strength. Do not trust in this momentary kingdom here. But let me point you to the kingdom of God and let me point you to the King Jesus. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. Paul continues to speak up and he speaks true freedom. Uh, this is an intentionality that can only come by, be, by being rescued by Jesus, right? So Paul and Silas go through all of this and, and they want to hang around prison and then answer a, pri a frightened jailer. Uh, so how about 
just thinking about this for a second, the, the softball question that the jailer throws, you know, we're just kind of putting ourselves in the, the shoes of each individual as we read through this. And I know I'm jumping around a bit here, so bear with me. But think about the jailer here. He just cries out, what must I do to be saved? We don't know if he was actually referring to like, can I be saved from the rulers of this, this Roman Empire? Can I actually, I, I, I was hearing a little bit of you guys singing about Jesus Christ, singing the gospel. Was he acknowledging that? Was he truly asleep and missed all that? We don't really know. But he throws up like the easiest question ever. That doesn't happen for us, does it? How many people actually approach us as the people of God, as the people given the gospel, and just go, dude, what must I do to be saved? It's usually like, hey, can you tell me, um, why do you think God allows suffering? You know, why, why is there a hell if God is loving? You know, those are the questions we usually get, which are totally legitimate questions to be asking. But wouldn't it be easy if we just got that question? So imagine how, how questions might change, though. And I, I can't prove that this is why the jailer has responded with this question, but I think it's something to draw out of the text and say, this is good for us to remember. Imagine how questions of the watching world might change to that of like the jailer when people see us live out the gospel in all of life. Truly see us live it out and bear witness rather than a Sunday morning or a group time. And I'm preaching to myself here because I'm very fast to segment life and go, well, this is where I need to take care of this. And the gospel speaks into it, but I'm too busy dealing with this right now to really think about that. But when we come together, we'll think about this and we'll bear witness in this way. I wonder how questions would change to really live in a way that we truly bear witness in all of life, live in a way that worship is actually all of life. So while Paul and the other apostles were, were eyewitness to Jesus, we're eyewitnesses to the, the whole counsel of God, right? We've been given the big story. Uh, if, like Paul, if we're in Christ, we know a gospel that truly frees us from who we were before Christ. Paul had, had already spoken freedom to the slave girl. Now he's speaking freedom to the Philippian jailer and his family. And, and look, now the jailer is going to celebrate as a, as a witness himself. He's beginning to bear witness as the story goes on. Paul and Silas say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The jailer responds. They continue to proclaim the word of the Lord, it says. And then the jailer is showing a change of heart. Uh, because it's interesting. That this, this dude isn't about to take in prisoners you know, of, of this empire he's in if there isn't a true change going on, a, a change in following Jesus. Because if I'm the Philippian jailer you know, who has something at stake, who could get in major trouble for messing with these guys. If anyone thinks I freed them, let alone I'm going to wash their wounds in a second, serve them a meal, I'm a little bit more fearful about getting in trouble over that. But this guy goes, I truly believe these guys are legitimate. I truly believe that the Jesus Christ they are following is the Savior. I will follow. So he invites them in. He gives them a meal. He washes their wounds. So the very one who received a, a cleansing of the heart, if you will, is now reciprocating. He's cleaning the wounds of his now new brothers in Christ. And then the jailer and his family, it says they're baptized. We spoke about baptism a bit last week. Uh, so I'll leave last week's message there because that would take a lot more time. But it looks like there's a party going on. 
after this baptism. There, there's rejoicing. There's food. And Paul and Silas had proclaimed the word of the Lord to everyone in the jailer's home. And it seems that the jailer is not assuming responsibility, that, that he's now assuming responsibility to continue the cycle. Because this is what happens here in, in verse 34. We, we can't know all the details, but we know that the word given in, in verse 34, referring to the jailer's belief, is it comes from this word pistuo, which means to believe or to trust in. The actual usage of this is a, a masculine singular usage here. So it's interesting that the jailer has now believed, he's, he's had his family baptized, or at least his household we know, so whoever consists of his household, and now he's rejoicing as he is a believer, and his family's rejoicing that he's a believer. What a beautiful story to say, here's a new believer saying, I will rejoice before my family because I want to be a witness to them. I want them to know this same Savior I've just been rescued by, I've come to know. It's incredible to see the same cycle happening through Acts. You know, Acts has shown us much about a call to obedience we spoke about earlier, but do you see how obedience always follows an initial action of God? God works first, and then we're made to obey. The Spirit guides, Jesus transforms, and then we're freed to obey, and now our obedience is being used by the Spirit of God to show Jesus. You see the cycle here? The same cycle has happened with the Philippian jailer. He's freed. He's freed from a, his own bondage. And now he's saying, I'm free to obey. Now I'm going to proclaim. And look how the Spirit's going to use this. Because we're going to look forward. We've got the book of Philippians here soon that we could read. What a beautiful thing to see. Like, whoa, we're looking at the beginning of that church. Lydia, possibly this, this possessed girl who, who Paul cast out the demon in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now this Philippian jailer. Here's the beginnings of new believers in this European region. And then we get to look forward to the book of Philippians and say, whoa, look how God used this cycle of obedience to begin His church in this region. Let's continue on through the story. There's more. The next day, you may recall that the whole reason Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown in prison is because the rulers and magistrates, they have a hasty response. They're like, we're not going to let you shake up our place. This is a place where we want to be very inclusive. We want everyone to coexist. We just want to all get along and make our money and do well. We want economy to thrive, all that good stuff. And so they quickly go, let's get these guys out of the way. Let's throw them in prison after we attack them. Well, the next day... The magistrates send police to the Philippian jailer's home and say, all right, let these guys go. They can go in peace. Wait, that's, that's it? Couldn't God have intervened in a different way? Well, God works. God's work happens in multiple directions on everyone involved. And so we're looking at his, if we think about his signs and wonders, do they ever just boil down to, to being for just a sole individual? just receiving that benefit. Healings are always for more. Wonders involving the elements are always for more. Some examples, look how the Spirit is working on Paul. He and Silas could have just dipped out. I probably would have. They could have thought this was not fun, but hey, look at the fruit. We're free. Let's just walk off. But, but actually, Paul responds in this area Again, he speaks up. We've seen him speak up three different times now and not remain silent. 
He didn't remain silent with the enslaved, possessed girl. He didn't remain silent with the jailer and just dip out and say, let's just go before anything worse happens. And now, they're being asked to leave, could have walked out and not had any other harm, or at least not taking the risk. What does he do? He speaks up a third time. Paul speaks up and he says, let them come to me. Let them come here. This is not the way this should have gone down. What's the purpose of all this? Why, why would Paul do all this after all that? Well, here's a couple of things to remember here. Uh, one, Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. If you are a citizen of Rome, you were entitled to a few things. One, you were entitled to a trial. If you were caught in something that was illegal, you were not to just be thrown in prison. There's this, uh, oh, what's the name of it? Lex something. Lex means law in Latin. Anyway, Rome had these laws, and whatever this was called that I can't remember right now, was a particular public rule that you could not humiliate a Roman citizen in public. Well, that happened. You certainly couldn't beat them in public or in private, and you couldn't throw them in prison without a trial. So Paul is speaking up about this, saying, you need to know I'm a Roman citizen. And I, I think this is a beautiful thing. It, once again, it's like Paul is opting out of, of momentary personal peace for the good of others. Because what happens when he speaks up about this? Well, Paul and Silas and his disciples, these missionaries, understood a, a high calling to go to the ends of the earth, right? With the gospel of Jesus. So Paul would would later, I just referred to this earlier, write a letter to the Philippian church. And he was actually in prison at that time when he writes this letter, or at least possibly house arrest. And he says, I want you to know, brothers, this is Philippians 1, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul speaks up. And what happens? The magistrates send the, the police back, or they actually come themselves and they apologize. They're in fear because they know we've made a grave mistake. We can get in massive trouble over this. And now they ask him to leave. But Paul is doing something. Look how the Lord is using Paul speaking up. Even the letter to the Philippians here later on will give us a reminder. Paul speaking up is actually for the good of others. It's for the good of the church. It's actually an encouragement to the church. I wonder if even it's a protection for this new church being formed. I wonder if Paul is serving as an advocate for those who don't speak up, is an advocate for those who can't speak up. I think that's an implication for us to draw here. So three times we see boldly speaking up. How do we believe the gospel speaks up about advocating for others? Are we prone to pursue quick personal peace? Or are we about speaking up and speaking out? You know, I, I love this particular author and pastor, um, David Pallison. He's a, a counselor and, and writer. 
And he actually talks about this particular text, and I think it gives us some things that are coming out of this and how we respond and, and live. And the thing I just keep coming back to is the gospel is always disturbing, and we're actually called to speak up even when it disturbs things. Not that we lack humility or that we're not walking humbly and with grace and speaking graciously, but are we speaking up? Are we speaking out? Are we speaking to one another the truth of the gospel? Are we reminding one another? Are we speaking out as witnesses before the watching world? And so this is also bringing us to some things that we should consider. How does God's word always call us to turn from things to the Lord and to turn to things that only the Lord provides? And so these are some things that Pallison uh, wrote out that I just thought were worth sharing. And I think Acts 16 reminds us this. To turn from compulsive self-interest. Are we turning from confidence in ourselves? Paul and Silas in prison. They're not displaying confidence in self. They're calling out to the only one who can deliver them. Are we turning from making our desires into our gods? You know, are we wanting this momentary thing? Are we just trying to fix the momentary thing? I need this working. Has that become our idol? Are we turning from living for what is before our eyes? And all around us, in other words, what I can only see now, am I actually fixing my eyes on the author and perfecter of my faith? Am I, am I remembering a, a Colossians remembering again, like setting our minds on things above? Am I remembering more than just what I he, see here? Am I remembering there's a hope that lies ahead? Am I turning from preoccupation? Are we turning from preoccupation with our anxieties of comforts or riches? Are we turning from fear of what people will do to us? Are we turning from willing and doing our own good pleasure? And then turning to, are we turning to faith in the living, loving, and powerful Savior, Jesus Christ? And are we turning to being willing and doing God's good pleasure? And I think this gets laid out here in Acts 16. Our God brings light out of darkness who makes mankind out of dust and breathes life into nostrils, who parts the Red Sea to deliver His chosen people from captivity, who holds all things together, who has a rescue plan from the beginning of time to be accomplished by the Son, who is radically changing hearts even today by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our God had a plan for this whole ordeal in Acts 16. He's working on every person involved. Are we turning to our living God? Are we speaking up? about our living God? Are we speaking out to those who need the same Savior we know? You know, the text concludes, So they went out of prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. What a beautiful way this text wraps up here in Acts 16. They've gone through all this, and they say, we're trusting again. And by our trust, we're going to encourage our brothers and sisters around us. You know, every time we come to God's Word, we hear God's Word proclaimed. The, the story is an ongoing one, right? It's written here, but the story continues because we await Christ's return. And every time we gather together, we get to participate in a meal. A meal called communion. Uh, certainly a reminder that we, have, we commune with one another. That we're not alone in this sojourning to follow Jesus, right? As wanderers, as we await Christ's return, we're not alone. We've been given one another, the body of Christ, to serve one another. But every time we come to the table, there's an opportunity to be renewed. God keeps His promise 
But there's an opportunity to come back and say, as we await Christ's return, we remember with hope. We have great expectation. But as we await, we're coming back to renew our promises to God. And our promise before God is that we'll obey, that we'll follow. And the only way we can obey is by the body and blood of Jesus Christ being given up for us. Or else we would just be obeying a bunch of masters over and over. Ones that never fulfill. Ones that will never deliver from being enslaved to sin. Ones that will never deliver from the imprisonment of darkness. But we obey the one who can deliver. And so we're going to take this meal shortly as we prepare to hear God's word. This is from 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord Jesus On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread before his disciples. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is a meal to partake every time we come together because it points us back and it, and it reminds us that we, we have a promise to keep before our Lord. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you have not believed in the one who saves, if you just ask the question, I just don't know, this is not a meal for you, not because there's an elite status here for the believers of Jesus Christ, but more of we want to prepare you to take this meal. We want, to, we want you to trust Christ Himself. We say like Paul and Jesus Christ, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We'd love to meet with you right after this gathering here. Come up front and see us if you're asking those kind of questions. Or find someone and just say, one of our members even, and say, I want to know this Savior you're talking about. I at least have questions. I want to talk more about it. And let's plan a coffee or a meal or something to come together and talk more. Let me pray for us as we prepare to take this meal and celebrate and remember. Lord, there is none like you. Jesus Christ, you truly are a great deliverer. From the beginning of time, you had planned out how you would rescue a people who had rebelled against you. So we await. We await your return when things will finally be made right. Until that time, we have to proclaim you boldly to ourselves. We have to speak up. Help us. Help us. We can only do it by the power of your Spirit. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.